Welcome to the SCRA CEO Podcast, where we hear from CEOs on their entrepreneurial experience. Hey, everyone. This is Kathy with SCRA. Um, this is the SCRA CEO Podcast with your host, me, myself, and my co-host. Hi, Matthew Bell, Director of the SC Launch Program. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are bringing back our favorite pediatric anesthesiologist gone technical founder, <laughs> Jack Neal. Must be your only one. <laughs> um, Jack, for the folks that haven't had the opportunity to listen to the original, we definitely want to dive back in and providing them the origin and a little bit of that brief history on what is Hank AI and how we've come this far and then kind of venturing onto where are we headed and where are we going? Awesome. Well, how long do we have here? We got, well, I got to keep this under 30 minutes. Right. <laughs> under 30 I'll minutes. To, I'll try to do it quick. Yeah, I'll try to keep this quick. Um. So, yeah, so thanks for the, the intro, and I'm proud to be your favorite, uh, what was it, technical pediatric anesthesiologist <laughs> in the low country, South Carolina. So cool. That's a good good title. Thank you for that. Um, so, no, so we, you know, my background in healthcare, I've been writing software since I was a kid, and so I kind of put those two together a couple years ago to try to, you know, solve what I consider the two things in healthcare that I can fix, you know, the two biggest problems that I have a chance to fix, which are button clicks and costs. So um, how do you get rid of all the provider button clicks and how do you lower the cost? So that's kind of where AI came from. Um, and so using different types of machine learning, automation, AI, you know, things that we build to do that. And so we sit um, in the payment space in healthcare. So we help, you know, providers when they do their work and take care of patients, they have to get paid or else they're good people. But they're not that good of people. They got to get paid or they won't do it. So um, you help get them paid with less headaches in the middle, less people in the middle, less expenses in the middle and faster, get it done faster. So that's where we sit. The nitty gritty of that would bore this audience. So um, I won't go any more into the, 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 the details there, but basically we help you get paid for providing care easier, faster, and cheaper. I love that. Um, I know when you last spoke with us, you're really transitioning between the service model to now getting everything really automated. With that, you've gotten some really cool new features on the program and on the platform. Do you wanna talk a little bit about that, the transitions, some of the pain points, but also some of the highlights on that journey from going from like proper service to automated and now like pushing through new features that ind individuals within this domain get to utilize now. Yeah, and I'll try to I'll try to keep it slightly generic because again our our um our use case you know people will fall asleep or hang up so um it is quite unsexy and extremely boring um but in a general sense you know going from the services which is like humans people doing it versus tech enabled services which is people plus machines doing it to tech <laughs> services which is like the tech can do it without a person. You know, those are kind of the three buckets that things fall into. Um, so, of course, the holy grail for most things, you can think about like self-driving cars, is that the car does it without a human in the loop, without a person around. That would be the tech, you know, a uh, human there to intervene, like in the Tesla when it screws up, that's a tech-enabled service. And then the services, I'm just driving an old, you know, a Hyundai, and I'm doing all the work. So, for us, we started focusing on the self-driving car version of this. Um, but you know, this is what happens when you're an entrepreneur, you got 
big ideas. Um, and, um, <laughs> as you, and it's good because otherwise you wouldn't do anything if you were, if you knew how hard things were, but, um, you know, along the way, you have to figure out how to actually survive, make money, get there over time. And so for us, our big idea was automate, straight automate. Um, and so we, we tried, but we needed more data. We needed more time. We needed more money. We needed a lot of things. And so kind of just came to be that merging slash aquamerging, acquiring slash merging um, with a services company that was traditionally doing the work. You know, they would drive in the cars. Um, we put the two together. And so that we could sell service the same way people you were used to consuming it, but start to automate more and more of it. That gave us data, that gave us knowledge, it gave us a brand in the space because people knew the service company. We weren't like this AI company who promises magic, right? We were a trusted player who was known for a long time. So we, I, I lay that out because we started as an AI first company and then we kind of had to back our way into adding services to get somewhere. Um, as we go back to it, as we continue to strive towards the, you know, the, the tech version with, with um, requiring less people to do the work. So, um, yeah, so we've made great progress. Um, we, there's still people in the loop for everything we do at the moment, um, in a general sense, if, if I'm being frank about it. Um, but, you know, we make sure they are more accurate, faster, and every time they interact with the system, it's more training data to get us closer and closer to the place where we start automating larger and larger percent. Just kind of curious, Jack, with, with you having brought your customers along the journey of the development with you versus hitting them with a, you know, a new chat GPT uh, slash AI product, um, uh, do you feel like that has helped you with your customer base in terms of their, they're seeing an initial product, which did add value for them, but now you're improving and starting to incorporate some of these elements, which seems like it would add value propositions that makes it easier for you to sell to them. I'm kind of curious if that's true or not. Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, what we, you know, I, I like I always say, I'm very convinced I know everything at the moment, but I'm also honest that a year from now, I'll tell you there's a lot of things I don't know. So at the moment, I'm going to tell you what I'm convinced I know, but just be aware we do this in a year and it might be different. Um, so. Um, you know, you would think that if you can just show some numbers that are verifiable and true, like you show some accuracy metric, you showed this stuff, that people would be, you know, that you would, to the customer, um, they would say, that's great. That's better than my people. That's good enough. And you'll save money. Let's go, right? And that is not at all found to be true. Uh, that was the premise that was, but it is not proven true. Uh, there's, in a space that's highly regulated, and when things go wrong, large lawsuits can occur, which is how healthcare payments are. Um, the numbers hardly matter on the, during the sales cycle, at least. Um, what I find that matters far more, and we've landed some, con some very large contracts, what matters far more is the comfort that you're not going to screw things up. Um, that matters more than, you know, the fancy objects and the promises so i think it still comes down to a people right it comes down to are you a trustworthy organization even though you're building fancy stuff it's going somewhere do people trust you and your organization um that's what it feels like now is the most important and so for us on the sales cycle it's not push out 
promises about how good these things are, promises about how accurate and how much you're going to lower your cost and all the typical marketing things. It's, it's far more the comfort first that we are going towards the direction of the future, right? We're getting you where you want to go, but you can get in, you can trust us, you can see and feel and everything first before you ever commit to that. So basically we sell predictions, we give them the predictions as part of the product for free. And the only difference between prediction and automation is them flipping a switch basically and saying, those are good enough. I'll take those without you. I'll take those automated. So I don't have to sell them anything. They tell me, why am I looking at all this stuff all the time? Just drive the dang car. Like, why am I in here? And they start pushing me to say, I don't want to be paying attention anymore. Other than me tell them they don't need to pay attention anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of the approach we've taken now. I think it's the right one. But again, we do this in a year, maybe it's different, but that seems right now what's been working. I like that. Um, I, I want to highlight that, the comfort that you're going to not screw something up, that that need right there is what's really driving the sales. Typically, what I find is that people are looking for like, how do we, how do we add shinier pieces to all of the objects? But the people piece of like knowing your audience and really understanding your audience to get them on board and build that user adaption. I like the way that you phrase that. Um, when I think about founders and the idea of giving, giving your goods for free when you're already in this weird space of you don't really have your, your base, you're trying to build your revenue and you're really trying to build your company, the idea of doing this free feels a little daunting. How do you want as a founder switch that perspective of doing the trial and solidifying and building those relationships, but also getting individuals that you're really marketing to and your beachheads to want to participate in that too? How do you bridge that? Yeah. So, so in our in our case, Ian, and to be clear on this, we're not giving the product away for free without them paying for something. So just let me let me explain this. So while the, you know, we started out just really focused on medical coding automation, right? So that's sort of like the self-driving of the car, right? Um, so people are, they want that, right? That's where our goal is to automate that, to drive the car without it. But at the same time, like we can sell cars, right? Like I have, we have a platform that's basically like, if you think of it, like, um, you know, in, in our space in healthcare, there's medical records, there's storage, there's mm -hmm. indexing and organizing documents and all this stuff, right? That's part of what you do now our core big product that we push for our holy grail place is automated of uh, the claim creation. But there's a lot of stuff underneath that has, is necessary. It's just like, it's necessary to have a car to get mm -hmm. around. Um, but you buy the car that is going towards the place where it'll drive itself. So in our case, we basically sell Dropbox to them. Not really, but if you want to think of it as data storage, you kind of sell them and make money on your data storage. And at the same time, you start showing them the other features that are closer to the future. And you can throw those in there for free so they can see them and feel them. But then if they want to flip a switch to, you know, it's very nuanced, but like the prediction itself, they still have to look at, touch, approve, and all this stuff. If you want to go from prediction to don't look at it at all, um, that's what you pay for because then we have to audit it, check it, and then we're guaranteeing it. Before that, this is just there's no guarantee, right? You accept all that stuff and it's all wrong, that's on you. So it's really, we sell a product that includes that as a feature that we give away for free. 
uh, inside of there. So they choose. So I, I think it's like if you have a product that's an automation, what are people already consuming? Like they're already doing something probably around this if it's related to data or objects. So can you sell that thing that's as good as the status quo? And then you be trustworthy that you're building the future on top of it with it. Um, so you can give that and test it along the way for free. So yeah, so that, so we're not just saying, hey, use all our auto coding stuff for free and then tell us if you want to pay for it. Like we'd run out of money to in that. <laughs> they are paying us for the base product, which is something that's more of the historical product, but they're getting the, the, the next generation with it. Bonus okay. nuggets in there heading into the future. I like that. So you're 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 going through this journey. You've got um, you know the the this vision of what you were going to do. You you pivoted a little bit and and, and uh, basically adopted a model for development that was a little more service focused versus automation focused, but with the intent of going automation full automation at the future. You've also started to get your customers into a position where they're trusting your product. You're starting to scale a little bit. You got, I'm assuming that's when you started to think about, okay, I need to raise some additional capital to really start to scale this thing. Cause I feel like I got the product market fit figured out. I kind of feel like I got um, a sales pattern going that I know I can replicate. Um, am I, am I off base and kind of what I'm saying? And, and, and at, at what point did you feel comfortable going out into the market and saying, okay, I'm going to raise a sizable amount of capital. Uh, you know, I'm very Southern, so um, we think a little different than the West Coast, I'd say. So um, I think about it when I need it, not so much, um, you know, what could I do with it? If I do it in a, in, a, in a need version, then like, hmm, I bet I can raise 100 million. What can I do with 100 million? Like, that's not how I think at all. Mine is more like to get where we're going for the next 18 months, I'm going to need 6.4 million or whatever fancy math you come up with. And so that's what I need. Um, and so for this, you know, we lay in the contracts first, you know, it's a delicate balance between not over hiring before you have <laughs> the, the deals um, and not overbuilding before you, you know, have the contracts. And so for us, it is land the contracts first, right? So build the MVP, build more than an MVP, build a totally functional product, but maybe it's lacking in some of the cool automation things that are the future. Um, but get more people signed up, right, into this product. That's what we've been doing. But then I need more people to support it, right, to be able to onboard into it, to be able to support any issues because it's a lot of fancy stuff in there and to drive forward what's coming. Um, but I think it's really, I've pivoted a little in how I think about the team and it's try to figure out what can I do that's the biggest impact with the smallest team. And I think that that's important in the environment we're entering because capital is getting tighter and tighter. Um, and the way that it was, you know, for, for 20 years almost, it's been, if you see good talent, hire it and figure out what, what for them to do. And, and that is, I think, flipped over completely now. You see great talent getting let go a lot of places. And so it's really focus on the product, focus on where you're going, focus on your direct needs in the time period and try to raise as little as you need to get through that. Because with valuations and the cost of capital, you're going to give up a lot of the company right now. Um, so try to give up as little as you can. So yeah, ours is need-based basically uh, to get, to make sure we don't blow up with customers, to make sure they're happy, to make sure we add features they need um, and to push and drive forwards towards, you know, um, that delicate balance of growth over, you know, capital 
Yeah. So I apologize. We had to switch to a different uh, uh, browser for the rest of this this presentation, but um, we're back and we're going to continue on. And we were just at the point where we were talking about fundraising and and uh, fundraising in the difficult environment right now, and starting to get about into a little bit as to Jack's experiences with regard to um, what fundraising was like over the last couple months. How difficult is the environment, and um, what are your thoughts about trying to raise capital in the southeast? So, you know, in the last couple of weeks, as we sort of started out this this fundraise, now we we paused one earlier this year. We had some work to do. It was clear when we started that we needed some more of our contract signed, some more of our platform revenue ramped up. Um, we already had some contract signed, but you know, we got more large ones, and um, you know, our revenue is growing much faster now on platforms. So yeah, we're we're in good shape now. So now we're doing our actual round. Um, and we've already got what should be leads and 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 should we should have it filled. Um, we're pretty much starting it next in November, like officially starting it with everything in November. But I think we've already got got our our our, our investors for it. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I, I for better or worse, I'm always looking at macroeconomics probably too much sometimes. I mean, I think it can be confusing and maybe maybe sometimes I'd be better served to just focus inward on the company and forget about the world, but kind of hard to do because it impacts us so much. So um, yeah, you know, I pay a lot of attention to what's going on in, in macroeconomics and markets that are just in capital and bonds and, you know, um, I'm sorry, I meant um, um, cost of capital and bonds in equity markets and valuations of private and public companies and all because that does affect you somehow right um even if it's not crystal clear it's affecting all the investors which means it's affecting you um so it's it feels like um you know rates are going to keep increasing right and this is not i'm not just speculating here the writing on the wall from people who are smarter than me uh, rates keep increasing, which means cost of capital keeps increasing, which means LPs who fund venture groups um, now have options to make good returns that's maybe not taking risk on early companies. So it's going to change the amount of capital available to companies, you know, early companies, and it's going to change the valuations across the board on what they're willing to pay for a good mm -hmm. idea and a good team. Um, and so... Again, those things do affect even all the way down to the smallest level because it is a connected system. So it feels like right now there's at least for a while here a shift um, of interest. So venture still has dry powder. Um, you know, their their funds, there's still a fair amount of dry powder in, in venture funds. They're still actively investing out of funds, but obviously valuations have been affected heavily in the last 12 months. Um, as rates have increased um, and markets have fallen, and you've so you have valuations down. You have a lot of companies that were in the hotbed areas, you know, like the you know the New York, um, Austin, um, you know, California, Palo Alto. I mean, those areas they were raising at very high valuations two years ago when capital was free in the COVID like money giveaways. So um, so they were raising an astronomical valuations compared to their revenue. And most of those companies, not all, but a high percentage have not seen the revenue increase at the rate that would be needed to maintain that valuation as capital got more expensive and valuations came down. So that means when they go to raise money now, um, their valuation is lower than it was then, uh, which causes a problem, uh, especially if you do price rounds, 
that typically have an anti-dilution protection in there that kicks in if it's a down round, if the next valuation is lower than the previous. Um, there's different ways it gets calculated, but in general, you're going to give up equity to those players who invested at a higher valuation to make them whole as you come down on the valuation. So that means if you're the executive of the company, a founder, you know, a, an option holder, or anyone else that doesn't have that, you're about to get double or triple screwed when you raise money. Uh, so if you get screwed too much, as in you don't own much of the company anymore or none, if it gets bad enough, what's the point? Your company's dead. You have no leaders. So because of that, investors are having more trouble. And this is from me talking to them. This is not just I think. I mean, I heard this. Um, is that those hotbed areas that have that problem have become hard to invest in because of that exact issue. So those companies are forced to basically figure out how to survive with the money they have because they can't really raise more money without all that issues, those issues kicking in. Whereas the rest of the country didn't get the benefit of crazy valuations. And so we are actually still investable. Um, we shouldn't have down rounds or probably assuming we grew. We won't be as affected by the valuation crash. Um, and there's still money to be invested. So we are actually in a better spot than on an average times, you know, relatively speaking, compared to our peers in the better areas. We have a moment where we are, I think, use the word sexier um, from an investment perspective, all things equal. Um, so I think it's our opportunity. There's the, the, the for years you've heard you know, West Coast investors and others, you know, give lip service to, we invest all over the country. I mean, that's, you know, they mean that as much as they do their DEI efforts, right? So, I mean, it's not, there's good intentions, and but it, it still just never makes sense. Now it makes sense. I mean, now it's, yeah. now it's prudent. So I think now you actually see it. It feels like it's happening. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that a lot of investors at least from the ones that I've like learned from is that when you're doing your evaluations as a company, as, as an entity, it's really thinking about how many more rounds are you going to be doing past that first one? Um, it's one thing to go in hot and heavy and just like saying we are worth this much and it's obscene amount. But I think people forget about that piece there to where what if something does happen economically and you have to do a down round? You have to think about those ramifications and how they're going to impact you on your ability, one, to incentivize future employees, employers, and things of that sort. Um, but then, two, how does that impact your initial investors? You know, those are things that I feel like they don't happen. Those conversations don't engage early on when you're creating that first round, that first deal, because those deals and those terms matter just as much 10 years down the line if you are raising again, like five years later, six years later, 10 years later, they're going to be impactful. They're going to impact that ability to do and continue to grow. So yeah. I'm glad you touched on that. Yeah, I think early on when you're first starting, if you don't have experience, like when I first started and I didn't, you know, we found good attorneys who had, you know, actually taken company. They were like Twitter and Kate Spade attorneys. They were out of Austin. And the deal was when we were setting up the initial stuff, I said, tell me what to do and don't let me do anything weird. Right. Because they know stuff I don't like. So I want to do normal customary things. I don't want to do creative. I mean, I like, you know, I like to try shit, right? No, but I don't want to try shit there. So sorry. If, I don't know if I can cuss on this. Sorry. Um, <laughs> mom, I'm sorry. Um, I, I'm 
I apologize. So, um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, I, I just, I think find people you respect um, who have done it before, you know, not your buddy who's a lawyer, <laughs> you know, unless they've done it before, right? Uh, but do mm -hmm. things that are normal and customary and probably the things that are typical are things that are the best situated down the road um, mm. when you don't know any better, that I didn't know any better, so. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of free resources out there too. I don't know if you ever had like the pleasure of like surfing the web to find resources as you're like patting yourself for the future. Um, do you have any that you think founders would benefit from? Just ask it, just ask whatever you have to chat GPT, just, just go with that. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be as good as, I mean, it might be wrong, but it's better than reading too much. I don't know. I'd just do that. Use your common sense in the response. And if it doesn't make sense, go actually look it up. But I, I honestly, that's what I do. I mean, uh, you got Y Combinator resources, which is clearly the, I, I would think clearly the best to find like good stuff from good people. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, that's what chat GPT's read. So like, <laughs> for your I'll, ch I'll change that question a little bit for your fundraising experiences that you just went through what'd you do right what'd you do wrong if you had to do it over again oh man i hadn't thought about that so you have to give me a second it's easy to figure out what you did right right that comes to your mind quickly um actually maybe it doesn't because that's not coming to mind quickly either no i mean i think it's um don't rush it like, because we, st I still haven't actually pushed it yet, right? Yeah. So this yeah. is still. So don't rush it. Um, you can put out feelers. You know, I put out feelers early on. Listen to it, right? If it doesn't, if something, I don't know. Listen to the feedback, right? Um, not to any particular feedback, but to the combined feedback. Um, but you know, if it feels like you're, if you're getting a lot of feedback that you're not in the right spot yet to get where you're asking, then you're not. I mean, you can keep fighting and keep trying and you might find some, you know, some fool somewhere to dive in on you. But I mean, it, it probably means that you're not in the right spot, um, yeah. you know, because they're pattern recognizers and your pattern sucks. So, um, yeah, just just take that and, and pause and adjust and uh, get positioned well. But, you know, don't let it change your company. Um, just just figure it out. I don't, yeah. I don't know if there's any rule. It's just continuously reevaluate and adapt and without without letting your ADD run you all over the place. I mean, you got to like still. I, I, I just when I was investing, um, I actually really liked um, entrepreneurs who would approach me too early and would just ask my advice and and thoughts on things uh, even multiple times. And there are several entrepreneurs that I would spend hours with prior to ever having a discussion about a capital raise just on everything from customer discovery to you know strategy questions to what have you and that's not true i think for uh, every vc but uh um uh, boy just for what you just said it really resonated with me because the the entrepreneurs that i remember the ones that i enjoyed working with the ones that uh, uh i was probably the most proud of investing into were the ones that probably did something like that and spent time with me beforehand and really developed the relationship, but also got the feedback. What are we looking for? Why are we looking for it that way? And um, I think I think there's enough investors out there who like that approach that that's probably something that would be advisable as well. well yeah, and if you think about it, I think one, you know, I'm, I'm probably some degree of ODD, like oppositional defiant disorder, right? I don't like getting told what to do. So uh, that's good and bad, but um, still, one of yep. the things that in this world, like when I look at it is, 
investors, their goal, like a venture investor, their goal is to invest in companies that are worth more later, yep. right? So at least they have a good pattern recognizer of what it takes to be worth more later. Yep. And if you're not matching that, then probably odds are you aren't going to be worth more later. Yeah. So, I mean, it might not be true, but if, across the board, odds are that's true unless you just happen to be lucky. And what are the odds you're, you know, that, and I think, that special? I think, I think for me, you know, uh, and, and most investors, you're looking at hundreds of deals a year. And um, when you come in to pitch me, if I'm a domain expert in that area, I probably have already seen something like you or already have yep. an opinion on your area or have some thoughts on your area or already know the strengths and weaknesses of your area before you even start talking, which means that, um, uh, you know, I'm probably holding something in my head that's a value to you um, in some way, shape, form, either on the investment strategy or on the strategy itself um, that's useful. So that's part of the reason why I think these conversations are so good at the beginning, because you're you're not only getting to know that investor and figuring out if they're a fit for you, because this is a two-way street, right? You, yeah. you're, you're trying to find people who are aligned with what you want. Exactly. Um, but also, uh, uh, there's probably some nuggets in there that are really valuable for you, I would think. So. Well, yeah, and and when you when you do meet an investor, when you're going to get in bed with one or you know get married to one, um, and it depends on the relationship. Some will just be cash and run away, you know, passive, yep. and some won't be. But if you're going to be working together, you have to make sure that you respect them because they're going to tell you what to do sometimes, right? Yeah. I and mean, so if you don't respect them, it's going to be tough. It'll be really hard and it'll be conflicting. So either you need to respect them or they need to be passive. Um, and I, I think just trying to figure that out early on. And then the last piece on this, and then I'll stop it, is part of my strategy has come to be like when I meet investors early before I'm planning to actually raise, when somebody's introduced me or something, I normally lay out where I expect to be when I raise. So like, here's where I expect our company to be. Here's sort of the things I expect to hit by the time we go to raise money. So whenever I do come with that, they have some his bellwether of whether we are already like getting where we're going, right? Are we treading water? Or are we actually hitting home runs? And so go ahead and lay out your targets early. So when you go back to actually pitch, you can bring that back and say, look, you know, we said we were going to have these two deals signed yeah. and have this revenue. And they'll yep. be like, oh, yeah, that's exactly right. There. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. sets expectations up very nicely. Yep. I like that a lot. Um, I think we, we talk about it as inflection points internally, um, where you're identifying what milestones can you reach and how do those milestones impact the value of the company as a whole. Um, and I'm glad that you touched base on that because that is something that's important that founders should pay attention to and really paint that picture. I'm gonna pivot a little bit. Um, throughout your journey, what has been, and it could honestly be like your life lifespan, Throughout Jack's becoming, what has been the best advice that you've ever received? Um, I, can I start with maybe worst advice? Um, so I, I, I think there's been, I've spent years like listening to, I mean, taking in a lot, right? Like in school, I feel like I've been in school for five years. Uh, which means like I've had coaches and a lot of different things and I've been listening and learning and listening and learning. Um, and, you know, I just turned 40. And so, you know, when I turned 40, I've made a few changes in life. I mean, half my life's over. 
probably half, maybe maybe slightly less than half. Um, but one of the changes was to try listening to myself more for a year. I feel like I've learned a lot. I've listened a lot. I've taken a lot in. Um, but it's time to, you know, go from being the student to being, you know, on your own. And so for, for this year, I'm mostly trying to just be comfortable in my own skin, be comfortable that I know what I'm doing. I've learned where I need to be and just do it. You know, don't, don't, don't try to bounce everything off a million people and get a million feedbacks. It's exhausting and overwhelming. And I think now I've done enough of that. So this year is going to be to be me, right? To run the company the way I think the company should be run, to focus on the goal. And this is with our team, of course, not just Jack in a silo, but I mean, <laughs> without, without really like pinging everything off of advisors and direct, you know, just, just, we know what we're doing. Let's go, mm -hmm. let's go, mm -hmm. let's be comfortable. Let's be confident. Um, and I think it's taken a while to get there. Um, you know, it's my first company, you know, we're, there's a lot of things. Again, I don't look like a minority because I'm not by any other shape of the imagination, but I am a physician who started a tech company. That's a minority in the investor world, right? That is not a, a, a pattern that they normally say, boom, that's a good fit. So um, in that world, you got, you know, it, it is harder um, in that world, in that realm, but you know, it, it, it just fight, it means that the wind's going to be that much more sweet, right? I mean, it's, it, going to feel even better because you did have to try harder so i don't know i mean the best the best advice probably i don't know if i gotten any direct solid business advice that i can resonate on i mean maybe it's the the stuff by simon sinek this wasn't you know this is more of a podcast by him but about the finite game versus the infinite game like mm -hmm. that thinking i think that is probably helps me more than anything else to continually force myself to think in that realm, which is, you know, the finite game means there's a winner and a loser. It is, you know, it is that you, you know, you had more points at the end or your revenue was higher than them or whatever your target is. It's defined, it's time framed, it's goalposts are set. The infinite game is more like Apple versus Microsoft. Like who who's better, right? Like based on what? right based on like number of products revenue happy customers happy employees like what's the, what is it right and i think when you think of it like for me it is you can you can create artificially create enemies because that's what drives us as humans right is sort of competition you know our, our rivals so you can artificially create them even if they don't know they're your rival in order to drive you and your company forward but you need to remember that's part of your finite game when you're playing an infinite so you're like we're, you're, you're trying to beat them in the short term, but that's not the game. That doesn't win. You spend all your mm -hmm. resources and beat them and you die. Like that's a, that's a loss. You lost the game game, right? But yeah. you won that little war so, or that little battle. So I think for me, noticing that and paying attention to that, that it's never like us against a competitor. And that I think, and I get focused too intently on that as the win. That's not the win. That's helpful mm -hmm. to drive forward, but you beat yourself. You constantly need to be beating yourself. Um, and I think that probably is the most helpful mindset. And I don't know if it's specifically advice, but that mindset, I think, helps me to stay driven by rivals to be better than mm. rivals without being consumed that winning is beating them. Because um, mm. that's not a game. You know, that's not the game we're playing. We're playing mm. the game that's longer, that's bigger, that's greater. Um, mm. To be a great company with happy employees, with lots of revenue, that make money for our investors, that well, you know, made a dent on healthcare and reduced button clicks, like all those things. That's mm. the game, right? But along the way, we can try to beat some of our competitors. There you I go. Like that. I like that a lot. Um, 
Where do the people find you? If you search on LinkedIn, I'm Jack, N-E-I-L. Um, and uh, my email is jack at jackmd.com. So you can uh, email me. And as long as you don't send a lot of spam, it'll probably make it to my inbox. Um, yeah, but no, I mean, I, I love, you know, thanks for doing these podcasts. You know, I, I, I love South Carolina. I think, you know, we... We aren't. I, I, when I raise money, people say, "Where are you from?" I typically say, "From the heartbeat of technology innovation," you know, Columbia, South Carolina, and of course, that's good for a fun giggle, um, you know. But you know, we we have a good school here. Um, I think we have people with integrity here. Uh, I think we have smart people here. Um, you know, that just takes time, right? You can't force mm-hmm. something to be. I, I think you know, the more of us that just keep staying home because we love it uh, the more that get you know some type of you know uh, support from you know um the region you know get connections into you know for, for me i think our biggest thing we could do is we have a lot of companies here and i've worked with some of the folks up in greenville like john warner up there doing um, some stuff but we have a lot of companies here in the state we have a lot of healthcare, lots of manufacturing if we intentionally can create a culture where those companies look, I mean, truly look for early companies in the state to work with, not like we force it to be, but if we can create a culture where they desire to, as part of their deals when they get tax breaks or other things to come here, like if we can create, like they have a desire to work with early companies here, that's part of their mission, yeah. then we can start to grow because we have those companies here. They just for us, it's hard. Like I don't have deals with MUSC or Prisma or any of the big players right now. Um, right. And it's, it's not necessarily their fault. Right. I haven't tried exceptionally hard too, but it's because I know the state and I know the culture and they tend to prefer to work with Microsoft or Google, you know, large players. Um, and so if we can slowly work that culture out, I think we can actually drive some things forward but we do still have if i had to give one thing that's still a headwind in this state i I think that's something fixable um but it's it's just takes a culture of of trying to jack thank you for your time today we appreciate you uh walking us through your experiences and your your story i think that's a big part of this and uh uh, wish you all the best with the company and the the finalizing your fundraise going forward i Uh, appreciate Yeah, I appreciate it. And I'll just leave you with the quote that I think is the quote of every entrepreneur, which is, uh, we do this not because it's easy, but because we thought it would be easy. (laughs) I like that. I do. I love that. Well, thank thank you again. Um, Thank the audience for listening. And we just appreciate everything that you're doing and being the champion for South Carolina. Ah, Thank you all for your support, as always. 